the name of Jesus, it has been, it's good to be together again as we worship. We're still able to worship in freedom. I was thinking about that just a little bit as, as Ernie was uh, during sharing time. You know, we don't, we don't, we could be somewhere else. God could have planted us somewhere else. Open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3 as we're continuing in the message series here from this epistle. I want to keep in mind again that the theme of 2 Peter is beware but grow. He opens the epistle with reminding the believer of the precious gifts that we have from God. And to use these precious gifts that keep us growing deeper in the grace and the knowledge of God, showing the importance of having the right foundations for our faith to grow upon. And we get into the chapter as we got into chapter 2. We saw Peter instructing us how to be on the lookout for false teachers, particularly those who were once believers and followers of Christ, but had deliberately chose to reject Jesus and are now in their teachings, in their false doctrines, intentionally working to lure other believers away from Christ. In his message of, of these false teachers, we see their destructiveness, their depravity, their, their doom, their deceptions. And then he teaches us a little bit how we can know who and what these false teachings were, what these, who these false teachers are, what they're trying to do. In essence, trying to give us a bit of knowledge of how to overcome these teachings. I believe that Peter's concern for apostasy... And his concern for turning our backs on Jesus are legitimate concerns. We're wise to take heed. And while he was super concerned about this issue, Peter also made it crystal clear throughout his, te through his teachings, throughout his, his writings, that by focusing on God's word and, and seeking, a, a, having a desire to grow deeper in the grace and the knowledge of God, and then using God's word to filter those teaching, we can be successful as followers of Christ. Now, I really like how Peter keeps coming back to those foundations in, in both of his books, actually. Peter points out, pointed out some very negative things. And, and the, lesson, the message today out of chapter 3 starts out a little bit more in the negative, but it really ends up on the positive. He, he tries... And not only tries, we did a very good job of keeping us focused on Jesus Christ throughout these teachings. And so today, as we look at chapter 3, we again see Peter bringing some reminders of who we are, who we should be focusing on. The first nine verses talk about these scoffers, particularly scoffers of the Lord's return. And then in verses 10 to 13, he talks about the day of the Lord and gives some descriptions of it. Uh, what that's going to look like, what we can expect, and then the final five verses are basically a summary of Peter's final exhortations to his readers. Let's read the first 13 verses of 2 Peter chapter 3. The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. 
For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were, were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with, great, with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and for a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. We're going to stop reading there. First nine verses, as, says, as I said, talk about these scoffers, the scoffers of the Lord's return. And I find it interesting of all the promises that Scripture gives, that God has given through Scripture, there is, in, in reality, there's none more precious, there's none more special and more meaningful and more motivating to us as believers than the promise of His coming. And, and, and Jesus gave this, this promise in John 14, first three verses. At his ascension, it was reiterated, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. And as, as you study the, the epistles and, and, and you read about the, the, the early church and the martyrs, you will find that this promise, the hope of Jesus' second coming, was never far from their, far from their lips. Hardship, ridicule, persecution, martyrdom were endured by thousands because they relied on the, uh, of this hope that they had in this wonderful promise. However, as you go through life, as you look around, you see those who are scoffing at the thought of the Lord's return, the promise of the Lord's return. They not only doubt the truth of this amazing promise, but they outright mock its authenticity. So what can we do? What can we say? How can we stay focused on the Lord and his promises when we face those who scoff, those who ridicule this blessed hope? And, and one of the things that has impressed me as we went through this, this, this epistle, Peter, one of, the, one of the ways he says to keep on top of, of this is he, he's, his reminders. He's telling us as his readers, remember Remember where our faith needs to be. Remember those false teachers. Remember to keep growing in the grace and the knowledge of God. And so as we remind ourselves of the truth, as we remind ourselves of the facts of our situations, and we remind ourselves of who God is, it becomes just a bit easier as we go through life to stay focused on God. And I think this remembering is actually a very good key to help us deal with these scoffers. Some of this, as we study what Peter has to say, becomes evident as these, these reminders. If you look at verses 1 through 4, the remember, remember these scoffers, we are to expect 
scoffers. This is not something that is maybe going to happen. It's going to happen. We are to expect these scoffers. In verse 1, Peter explains what he's, that he's writing to stir up your pure minds. He doesn't want his readers to doubt the promises of the Lord simply because there are those around us who are scoffing and making mockery of this and casting doubts on the facts. I like his term pure minds because to me it means that he's writing on the assumption that we are already grounded in God's truth. And we just need these little reminders here and there to, to remain grounded. And then in verse 2, Peter challenges us that ye, be, that ye may be mindful. Mindful of what? And he says about the, the words spoken by the holy prophets. And he may have been speaking to the Old Testament prophets, but as he says there, um, spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and and, and Lord and Savior. So the apostles would have been eyewitnesses, direct eyewitnesses to the life and the ministry, the suffering, the, his death, his resurrection of Christ. They knew all about it. They were there firsthand. So he says, be mindful of these things. And then back in chapter 1, verse 19, Peter referred to their, the testimonies of the, of the his holy prophets and the testimonies of the apostles um, but particularly of, of the writers of Scripture, that these words, these writings were given by God. It was not as cunningly devised fables. And so Peter also wants us to be mindful of these, of these things. He uses the term stirred up there in verse 1, both in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. The idea is here to be reminded all we have, we should not be surprised when we encounter scoffers. Peter says in verse 3, they were going to come in the last days. And it's talking about the age of the Messiah, beginning at his, his first coming, and this is going to be called, culminated with the day of the Lord. Peter goes on and explains their motive. The scoffer's motive is they are walking after their own lusts. I read this, a scoffer soothes his own guilty conscience because he knows the coming of the Lord is designed to bring judgment to his ungodly actions. And so they pacify, they try to justify their own guilty conscience because he knows that the coming of the Lord, it, there, there's a finality to it. There is judgment there. He has to reckon with his deeds if he wants to deal with the fact, with the promise of the day of the Lord. But they're forgetting some important things. And Peter writes to remind these to us as well. In verses 5 to 7, we see Peter emphasizing the consistency of God's work. The scoffers refuse to acknowledge or they forget that God's word has been consistent. Never, ever forget the accuracy and the consistency of the word of God for what he says it will come to pass. Something that I came across as I studied. He goes on to call these scoffers willingly ignorant. They're purposefully choosing to forget the events of the flood. And he uses flood a couple times to, as, as reminders. 
It was God who by his word brought the world into existence. It was God who looked down and saw the wickedness of man and through Noah spread the word. And it was his word that brought the flood. But these scoffers continue to willingly ignore these truths because they are trying to justify their own ways. And to do so, they need to erase the truth. And we find people today doing the exact same thing. They're conveniently ignoring the truth, ignoring the evidence that weakens their case and their argument. Instead, they ridicule the truth rather than facing it and dealing with this sin. And so Peter reminds the flood was an evidence of the certainty of God's word. By God's word, the world was created. By God's word, it was destroyed by water. And so if God says that the universe, as Peter wrote, is going to be kept in store and reserved unto fire, you had better believe his word is going to come true. The same word is what Noah believed. And he spent those 120 years building the ark and preaching. The flood came. It's that same word that promises and it's going to carry through about the Lord's coming and all that pertains to it. And so Peter argues that if God kept his first promises there to destroy the world by fire, we can expect him in this present promise as well. But the scoffer comes along and he chooses to forget it and continues to make excuses for his unbelief. In verse 8, we see that God is, Peter reminds us to remember, God is not affected by time. And God paints a very clear picture of God's view on time. Unlike us, God is not a creature of time. Time does not bind him. We, on the other hand, are creatures of time, of night and day, of schedules and calendars, and we're bound by these laws of time. And we can be seriously affected. Negatively, if we do not. And so Peter writes, one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And so who are we to bind God, to constrain him in any time constraint? And, and that actually proves how ignorant we really are. What I think Peter's trying to point out here, and he, and he uses this illustration to create a point. But I went back and I thought of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, where he said, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed by you. And I believe at that point, I didn't check this out, but I don't think Abraham had any children at that promise at that time. It took 2,000 years for that to be really fulfilled in, in the form of Christ. You go back even further, you have God's promise to Adam and Eve. In the Garden of Eden, or after, it was actually right around the time where they got kicked out of the Garden. In Genesis 3.15, he talked about the coming of, of the Messiah, where, the, where the, the serpent would, his head would be bruised by their seed. That took 4,000 years to fulfill. And, and, and yet, according to Psalm 90, verse 4, that, those, that amount of time, the 2,000 years to 4,000 years, was as two or four days to God. And what Peter says here as well. And so the point here is that God kept those promises. 
And so if God can keep those promises, and, and he did, about the flood, about the first coming of Jesus, um, Abraham's promise, he's going, to be, he's going to fulfill his promise of Jesus' second coming as well. And yet there's way too many people, there's too many people who are mocking and scoffing in disregard to these truths. What are we doing today with this? And then finally, Peter tells us in verse 9, remember that God is long-suffering, he's not slack. And, and this really stuck out to me. The scoffer looks back at history, and he thinks because all this time has passed without the Lord's return, it means it ain't happening. Peter says there could be another reason here for the delay of the Lord, Lord's return. God is long-suffering. He doesn't want that any man should perish but rather all should come to repentance. There in verse 9. Yes, God is a just God, and, and He's going to do exactly as He promised. But He is also a very merciful and a loving God. And every day, every minute, perhaps even every century that passes where the Lord's return is, in quote, delayed, is another day, another minute, another century for souls to be won, for souls to come to repentance. The scoffers refuse to acknowledge this, and they simply keep on with their mockery. They deny Jesus as Lord. They deny and reject his promises. And in the middle of all that, many of these scoffers, and particularly the false prophets that Peter was talking about, they keep on working faithfully, uh, not faithfully, um, but they keep working diligently in their own way to turn others away from these promises as well. But remember and be encouraged as Peter's trying to get us to understand God is going to keep his promises. The day of the Lord will happen. God is not limited to our time frame. He is not limited to our designer agenda of who he is. So let's not lose heart as just because we have, we're surrounded by people who scoff and ridicule about the idea of the Lord's return or any of God's promises. But let's keep being stirred up. Let's keep being mindful of the words of the Lord and trust in the evidence of his grace. Now as we come into verses 10 to 13, Peter kind of summarizes this day of the Lord business. And these verses, they, they hold this message that Peter had been building up to in the previous nine. He alluded to it in verse 7, where he talked about the heavens and the earth being kept in store, reserved until the day of judgment and the fire or perdition. His point was to prove to these scoffers that their mockery doesn't change the facts of Christ's return. But he's also wanting to encourage all believers worldwide to remember the truth of God's promise rather than to succumb to the ridicule of these unbelievers. Now Peter gives some detail about the Lord's coming in these few verses. Basically he gives us a taste of what to expect. First of all, in verse 10, he calls it the day of the Lord. Now, some people believe that the coming of Christ, the phrase the coming of Christ and the phrase the day of the Lord are two separate events in which the coming of the Lord refers to the rapture of the saints, whereas the day of the Lord is more the final coming that occurs much later. However, as you study into this here, particularly Paul and Peter use these expressions interchangeably. We're not going to turn back to here, but in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, Paul uses the term coming of the Lord to describe 
what it's all about, and the implications of it for the righteous. And then in one chapter later, in the first four verses, he calls it the day of the Lord, and he discusses the timing surrounding these events. And there are similar terms that Paul uses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm not going to get real deep into that in this message, just bringing some things out here as Peter writes them. Um, but there's some homework for you. Um, keep on studying. Go home and, and look at these passages up and, and see what for nuggets of truth you can bring out in your, on your own. We do want to look at what is true surrounding the, the, this thing of the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord as promised. Another thing that Peter talks about is that it, this Lord's coming is going to be unexpected. Now, Peter and Paul both use the expression, as a thief in the night. Jesus used that phrase as well in Matthew 24, 42 to 44. Why is this, the significance of this phrase, and using this as in a real life example, that it, no one expects a thief. No one expects, we don't wake up in the morning and go, well, today I'm going to put in my day timer, going to be, uh, there's a thief coming, he's going to break in and steal. We don't do that. It's unexpected. The thief prefers the element of surprise. So he gives no warning. It is to his advantage to break into a building or a car or whatever in both darkness. The majority of this stuff is done in darkness. It is unannounced. And those become the disadvantage of, of, of the victim. And it doesn't take much studying to realize and to know that there's millions of dollars being spent in security systems and cameras and you name it to help prevent thieves from breaking in or at least try to remove or, or lessen the thief's advantage. Peter says the day of the Lord is going to be just like that, unexpected and without warning. The beauty of this, and I had not really thought about this too much before I was studying, this surprise, this unexpected, this thief in the night is solely for the scoffer, for the unbeliever, for the, for the person who refuses to believe and accept the truth. Back in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul talks about that you and I as believers are not in darkness. We are not ignorant of these things and how, at least in general speaking, how it's going to take place. And so the Lord's coming, while it's going to come quickly, it's not going to be the same as that thief in the night to us as believers. We don't know the day or the hour of that coming. And God has not given us a timeline for that coming. But Paul tells us, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Revelation 3, 1 through 3, there's some instructions for the church of Sardis. Be watchful. And strengthen the things which remain to remember what they had heard to hold fast and repent so that the Lord's coming is not as a thief to them. So as we study God's word, we see what God has said about this, we can rest in these promises. It's not going to be as a thief in the night to us. Yes, it's going to be quickly, but it's not going to have the same uncomfortable edge. Another thing Peter talks about in the coming of the Lord is he describes it as, in, in, in one word, I'm going to say catastrophic. He writes that the heavens are going to pass away or disappear or vanish. Those are the words that surround what he says there, with a great noise. 
Now, the heavens here could be referring to the atmosphere. Most likely, though, is talking about the universe in general. In his description of this great noise, using the words great noise, suggests that this event is a violent destruction of the universe, not just simply a fiery purification. It is a, a destruction. If you look carefully at the last parts of verses 10 and 12 and the first part of verse 11, they all further emphasize the terribleness of this destruction. Fervent heat, burned up, dissolved, melt with fervent heat. These are terms that Peter uses. Now these elements he's referring to are most likely the celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And interestingly, according to some Jewish belief, um, Isaiah 34, 4 actually talks about this. In the last day, they, they believe that the stars are going to be destroyed. The term melt in verse 10 means break up, destroy, dissolve, unloose, or put off. And then in verse 11 and 12 is translated as dissolved. However, in verse 12, the word melt is a different Greek word than in verse 11. It means to liquefy. Things are going to be so catastrophic in the day of the Lord, however God wants that to work out, that the elements, the physical things that we see and know are going to become so intensely hot that they're going to be melted and destroyed. They're going to liquefy. Verse 10 tells us the earth and the works that are within are going to be burned up. Some manuscripts use the phrase laid bare here instead of burned up. Again, Given the context of what Peter's describing here, it's not just a method of purification, but of annihilation, destruction, total destruction. Revelation 21.1 tells us that all things have passed away, will have passed away, and there's a new one replacing it. Hebrews 12.25-27 indicate a removing of all things. Brothers and sisters, we don't know a lot about the coming of the Lord. But scripture is clear that it's gonna, there is going to be a catastrophic end to the earth and the universe as we know it. But again, the believer does not need to despair because we have our trust in Jesus Christ. And now in verse 13, Peter talks about the day of the Lord is going to usher in a new order. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. So take some time to study passages like Revelation 21, 1-5 and others similar, and you'll see that new order described more fully. But it's going to include a new Jerusalem. And the little bit that we know what some of this is going to look like, it's pretty amazing. They're going to be free. We do know that this new heaven and new earth are going to be free of evil. And it's going to be filled with righteousness. The new heaven, the new Jerusalem is going to be the ultimate destiny of the redeemed. And that's you and I this morning. The, uh, the, each believer and each follower of Jesus Christ. And so we look forward to this new heaven and this new earth because we believe and then trust in all God's promises. It gives us hope. It gives us vision. It gives us purpose. And it shows us a destination. Peter gives some pointers as we look at these promises to be inspired to holy living. 
Verse 11. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? In other words, he's trying to get us to understand the things that we acquire in this earth are going to be dissolved. Our wealth, our fame, if we have any fame, our stuff, all of that. It's going to be gone. What we consider important here, materially, is going to be destroyed. 1 Timothy 4.8, For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. 1 Timothy 6.19, Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold of eternal life. Statement I came across says, The only thing that gives us promise of life to come is godliness. Holy conduct before God is the means to store up a good foundation against the time to come. And so while we become people of holy conduct and godliness, Peter emphasizes here that we're to be looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of the Lord of God. The word hasting has the idea of earnestly desiring. Also gives the idea of to speed is coming. How many of us, as we look around the world today, would like to speed this coming of the Lord up a little bit? End what is going on today. End the wickedness. Bring on this righteous kingdom. I don't know how we can shorten God's timing that he has set. I don't think we, we, we can, but that's not our concern. I believe what Peter's trying to tell us here is while the time that we have on earth, as bad as it is, we in, in that time, we are to be faithful in all that we are and all that we do. And a big part of that is keeping our focus on the destinations. In 1 Peter, one of the things that we talked about as we went through that book was we are simply pilgrims, sojourners, travelers here on earth. And we're simply on a journey to heaven but God has placed us here in this earth and as we're traveling as pilgrims we are to be living in faithful holiness to Christ in everything yes we earnestly desire the coming of the Lord to put an end to the evil and the sorrow around us but remember every day is a day for God's mercies to be shown to another soul and it's more opportunities for you and I to keep on growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ my final point is a question how are we responding and friends there are three ways that we can respond to these promises to God's word we can mock them as the scoffers did we can ignore them, disobey them, and be found unprepared for the Lord's coming, like the parable of the ten virgins, five didn't have enough oil. They were not prepared. Or we can humbly and joyfully heed God's word and be prepared. Let's uh, read the last number of verses here, 14 to 18 of 2 Peter chapter 3. And there's a, couple, there's a few key things here we need to be doing that help with the question, how are we responding? Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found in him in peace, without spot and blameless. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, 
as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of, th of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Some key responses. We are to be found in peace without spot and blameless. And Peter says we're to do this diligently, which means earnest, earnestness, zeal, sometimes with haste. Brothers and sisters, this morning, how serious am I that God is going to find my soul in that type of a condition? Is he going to find me earnestly watching as I wait for his return, diligently doing his work, whatever it might be? Am I diligently maintaining my faith, my trust in God, the path toward that final destination? Peter reminds us, too, that we are to remember the long-suffering of God. As we dis discussed earlier, time is irrelevant to God. We don't understand that because we are bound by time. And so from his perspective, every year, every minute, every century that the Lord does not return, we need to think about that as time for salvation, for souls to return to the Lord. And in the middle of that, it is also because of God's long-suffering that you and I have opportunities to continue growing in the grace and the knowledge of God. Verse 16 gives us the idea, we dare not twist the scriptures. It says there, to their own destruction. We are better people because of the scriptures. They do much good. They bring salvation an awareness of our need for salvation. Because they've been given by inspiration by God himself, they become, as the writer says, living and powerful and are sharper than a two-edged sword as they work in our hearts, in the hearts of man. But twist the scriptures and they can be used to mislead someone to his eternal destruction. And then finally, in the last two verses, we're talking about trying to answer the question, how are we responding Peter summarizes this epistle with some very strong admonition. Beware, take heed. Be alert. Be on guard against false teachings and things that lead us away through error from Christ. Verse 17, this, this verse here summarizes what Peter was talking about in chapters 2 and 3 concerning apostasy of those who are guilty of denying the Lord, those who have forsaken the right way and are astray. These are false teachers who are deliberately twisting the truth to fit their own lusts. To do what they can to drag others away from them. Peter says, beware. However, Peter ends the chapter with some very simple but very important words that we do well to listen to. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And there is a summary of the main points, particularly in chapter 1, that Peter was describing, the blessings that come through God's grace and showing themselves as we grow in the knowledge of God. And I don't think it's too strong of a statement to say that our spiritual success with God is dependent on our response to this last verse. 
and our willingness to go and to apply these things personally. Peter closes, as we as in closing here, he closes the second epistle with a very simple but yet heartfelt expression of faith. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. And brothers and sisters, if we long to join the heavenly throng in that new heaven, if we long to be there to praise our Redeemer around the great throne, we need to heed Peter's final warnings to us and his words. Let us be diligent to be found in peace. Let us make sure our lives are holy before God without spot and are blameless. Let's remember the long-suffering of God and his salvation. Let's keep his word forefront in our hearts to avoid our soul's destruction. Let's be aware that there are indeed false teachings out there. And be aware and cautious of the things that are not true, lest we fall away. And let's keep on growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we can be fulfilled in that amazing eternal destination to each person that is faithful. Shall we kneel for prayer? God in heaven, we thank you that you are God. That your word is true. That your word is sure. So we've looked at these, this epistle. We've seen over and over again how that when you say something, it will be. The promises that you say will be fulfilled. They will be done as you say. Lord, there's many around us who refuse to believe for different reasons. And as we go through life, may we be faithful first to you, but then also be faithful in sharing your truth to them. May we not be affected in a negative way by the scoffers, by the unbelievers. It is so easy to pick up things that have some elements of truth in them, but yet are not 100% sound, and to believe them, and to be in, which leads us astray. Help us to keep our lives rooted and grounded in your word, in your truth, in your promises. May we grow in your grace and in your knowledge as we go through life. And may that make a difference in our lives as we keep our focus on the end destination. Lord, we don't know what all the day of the Lord is going to look like, what it's going to bring. Your word gives us enough. But Lord, help us to anchor ourselves in those promises that we can be found faithful when you return. In Jesus' name, amen.